0: This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, an intern at Grace Church. Turn in your Bibles, if you could, to the book of James. James is the last book, or not the last book, one of the last books in the New Testament. Short book, and we are in a series called Pure Religion out of the Book of James. While you're turning there, I'll uh, share a brief story that I read in the Dallas Morning News a couple of weeks ago. I read about an institute that I didn't know about before picking up the paper on this particular Sunday a couple of weeks ago, and this institute is the Fire Walking Institute of Research and Education. And they meet in Flower Mound right down the road. Fire walkers. Uh, it, pretty amazing that they, they get together regularly and they put the coals down. And it's a motivational kind of a deal where a self-made millionaire kind of comes out and says you need to walk the coals. And after you walk the coals, uh, you'll come up come up come away with the idea that I can achieve and I can do anything. I've got it in me. I've got it within. I've got the power is there. It was just residing inside the whole time. The giant was there. I just need to to wake him up. Uh, The power was there. I just needed to somehow find it down deep inside there. And maybe it's just uh, that I'm on Pixar overload as a dad. And the Disney shows that say almost the exact same thing, that you just need to discover the magic within. But I just kind of found it comical that this is an age-old myth, an age-old belief that we just keep buying. And folks are charging big money again and again at different ages. So 10-year-olds are believing the lie, and 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 60-year-olds are believing the lie. That there's magic and that there's power in us. And the secret to life and the secret to making your life work is just discovering the life inside. Discover the power within. And what we're going to see today, and we'll see this continually through the book of James is that life isn't found outside of us. The secret to living life and the secret to enduring life, especially in trials, is not to look inside of us, but to actually look outside of us. James's burden is to show us that endurance comes from discovering not who we are, but discovering who God is. Not discovering the truth about all this power that we have, which we'll see today we don't have, But in discovering and rediscovering over and over again the truth of who God is on the outside of us. So what we want to do today is actually I want to read the first chapter through verse 18. And then we're going to hang out in verse 12 through 18. So let's read and then we'll pray. Starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Father, it is our desire that you would bring forth from us a faith uh, and a love and an endurance that pleases you. And do that, Lord, by the word of truth. For God, we as Christians stand today forgiven and redeemed and brought to you in a kind of firstfruits among your creatures for you brought us forth by the word of truth and God you sustain us by the word of truth so Lord we ask that you would do that today sustain your people today by the word of truth and bring forth life in those who don't know you by the same word of truth in Jesus name we pray amen We saw a couple of weeks ago when Craig kicked off the series that James wants Christians to do amazing things. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He just kind of hangs out this idea that trials are a good thing, that we should count joy because trials bring about something in verse 3 that says steadfastness. It produces steadfastness. And then he says in verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And like James does a lot in the book of James is he just kind of opens up a truth, closes the door, and he kind of keeps taking you through the house that he wants to show you. Lots of things about the house, but he doesn't want to explore everything right there. So he's just going to take you into a room, let you peek in, close the door, and let's check out this other truth. Peek in, close it. And that's what he does a lot, especially in the first chapter. And today he picks up that same thought in verse 12. So he said previously, count it all joy when you, ca- when you encounter various trials. Lots of different kinds of trials. Trials that stay with you and trials that kind of just come and then they're lifted off of you. Small trials and big trials. Annoying trials and despairing trials. Count those things joy because they produce steadfastness. And now he's going to talk a little bit about what he means by steadfastness and the value of of steadfastness. Why is that such a value? Maybe your translation says endurance. Why is endurance? Why is steadfastness such a high value in the language of Paul? Well, Here he says it in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So is he going to give us some more clues? Yes, he is going to give us some more clues on why that is such a Blessed state. Now, that word blessing doesn't necessarily conjure up a whole lot of images of completeness and fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness. But that's what's loaded down in that word blessed. Blessed means fulfilled. Blessed means satisfied. Blessed means content. Blessed means joyful. Blessed means happy. So it's kind of like a proverb. He's throwing a proverb out there and he just says, hang on that proverb because I'm going to explain how you get there. But hang out there. So we're supposed to hear blessed, and we're supposed to go, whoa, that's what I want. I want want to be complete. I want to be whole. I want to be healthy. I want to be right. I want to be fulfilled. I want to be happy. I want all those kinds of things. So he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And that's when we step back and go, whoa, that's what you said earlier. Count it all joy when we encounter trial. What's that all about? Now he says, why? For When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So here's the answer why trials are a good thing. Trials are a good thing because they produce steadfastness. And steadfastness is a good thing. Is because when we have stood the test and proven steadfastness and proven endurance, we get this thing. What do we get? We receive. What do we receive? He will receive the crown of life. Now, crown conjures up all kinds of imagery of victory and exaltation and glorification. And all of that is loaded in there. But it's a crown of exaltation of life. It's a crown of life, a victory, a reward is being offered to you in verse 12 and offered to me in verse 12, a crown of life. It's a metaphor that is a very descriptive metaphor of an exalted state of living in union with God forever. So the reward that's being offered is an everlasting crown of life with God, life with God is total fulfillment, total completeness, total happiness, total joy. That's what blessedness is. That's how he defines it. James doesn't go anywhere else to define what it means to be blessed. Blessed means receiving from God eternal life with God. That's what it means to be blessed. That's how happiness, to James, is defined. And if you don't define happiness or fulfillment or satisfaction the way that James defines satisfaction, then you might not have the very life that he's speaking about in this passage today. Because for a Christian, happiness and fulfillment and completeness and blessedness is defined by life with God. And that's how he describes the reward of those who stand up under trial. They receive from God the crown of life. And notice how he finishes out that phrase in verse 12, which God has promised to those who love him. He could have finished out the thought with the same theme of endurance and steadfastness he could have just said for those who are steadfast but he actually chooses the word love and it's interesting that he chooses the word love because that is that's not necessarily what we think of when we see the word steadfastness sometimes we conjure up ideas of a stoic resolve just we're going to plant our feet down And it doesn't matter so much if my mind is engaged or my heart's affections are engaged or any of that stuff. I'm just going to, by will and by sheer obedience and sheer duty, just kind of stand firm. And that's not what James has in mind at all. The kind of endurance that pleases God is a kind of endurance that is defined by love, which God has promised to those who love him. Endurance is love. And love for God is defined by an enduring faith for God. An enduring trust of God. If I could summarize verse 12, it it would sound something like this. God promises eternal life with him only to those who have an enduring love for him. That's what it means to be blessed Eternal life with God. But he qualifies it for those who love him. Everlasting completeness, everlasting wholeness with God. Qualified by those who have an enduring love for God. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 24. In the last days, because lawlessness will be increased... And we're living in the last days, and we have since Jesus was ascended. The love of many will grow cold. That's the state of the world. The love of many will grow cold. Persecution of Christians will increase. And idolatry will increase. And all of that affects lawlessness. That's what's behind that idea. Lawlessness will be increased. And the love of many will grow cold. Affections for God will grow cold and will dampen because of the increase of lawlessness. And then he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus defines love the same way James defines love. Endurance to the end. stead. That's why trials can be considered a good thing and we can count it all joy because trials, more than anything else in our life, show us and show the watching world that we have an enduring love for God, which qualifies us for everlasting life with God. That's what this enduring love proves to us and proves to a watching world. And that's why we can consider all the... The trials that come is joy. But verse 12 kind of begs the question of how do you obtain this love? How can we be sure that we have this love? How does this love increase in our hearts and not decrease in our hearts? I hope to show verses through verses 13 through 18 that our love increases through beholding his love in the gospel. That's what... Scripture holds out for us the promise that our love and our endurance increases, our faith increases, our trust increases. Not by looking down into us or walking across hot coals, but by staring at and holding fast to the truth of God's love, of God's trustworthiness, of God's faithfulness. Through beholding the gospel of God's love, our love increases. So how he answers this is kind of interesting. He takes a common lie that Christians believe, and then he reminds them of the gospel. He could have done it lots of different ways, but he goes straight into verse 13, which is a common objection Towards God, a common objection raised to to God and raised to others when trials come. And he doesn't lead into it. He doesn't like create a stair step to it. He just goes right on into it. He has just said, count it all joy. And now he said, blessed are you when you stand fast under trial. And then in verse, verse 13, he takes on a common lie that Christians believe, which is at the same time a major obstacle to our love for God and our love for others. What's the common lie? You, read, you just read it very plain. Common lie right here, verse 13. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. That's the lie. This lie gets lodged in our hearts and it manifests its, its way out in various forms and in various thoughts in our minds. But bottom line, the lie is let no one say, I'm being tempted. And I'm being tempted by God. It's not a denial of temptation. He's not denying temptation. He's saying the, cr- the line you don't cross. Is this temptation is coming to me directly. And the words are by God. God is tempting me. He says don't let let no one say that. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And He himself. Attempts nobody. Basically, the, the lie can manifest itself in, in your mind and in your heart. And you can talk this way or hear other people talk this way. But it's the belief that God is weak. And it comes out like this. God wants to see me fall into sin. God is, is desirous to see me fail. Doesn't God see me fail at this every time? He must want me to fail again. It's this thought that God wants to see me self-destruct. That God somehow got this morbid fascination with watching his children just kind of blow up and fail and blow it again and again and again. Kind of like when we 're at the supermarket and we look over at the tabloids, and we just see superstar after superstar just utterly self destruct in front of our eyes, and there 's this morbid fascination. Why is Brittany shaving her head and and yet we we 're just curious why in the world is that going on? Why is this superstar falling again? Remember watching this uh Documentary a couple years ago on Millie Vanilli. Remember those guys? And just, I mean, their rise to just utter popularity and then their just total fall and they just fell so hard and so fast. And it was fascinating, frankly. It was fascinating. And we can view those kinds of things and we can see self destruction going on in people's lives. And there's this morbid curiosity in us. That we can somehow attribute to God. God must be like that. After all, God's a lot like me, right? God must have this morbid fascination. God must must want to see us self-destruct because I'm self-destructing a lot. I'm falling and I'm failing and I'm blowing it a whole lot. I'm being tempted a whole lot. So God must be distantly watching this at the same time. Not only is he he's weak in that he is desirous to see that kind of thing happen in my life. But he's, he's distant and he's distanced himself from me because I'm doing this again and again and God doesn't intervene. And isn't that the same thing as him directly tempting me? The fact that he's not intervening right here, right now, the way I think he ought to. The lie basically is I'm being tempted by God, but the scripture says God cannot be tempted with evil. We cannot attribute to God the same morbid fascinations and curiosities that we have as if God has those things about us, that God even tolerates that in his presence or in his mind or in his heart. The scripture says God cannot be tempted with evil, cannot It's impossible, the word is, it's impossible for God to be enticed to harm you. It's impossible for him to desire anything evil to happen to you. It's impossible for him to have a sinful, ulterior motive in his heart that somehow frustrates him because on the one hand, he's benevolent and gracious and good and promises to be everything for you and to come alongside you in your weakness. And at the same time, he has this ulterior sinful motive to see you fall and fail. And yet, when trials come, that image of God flashes up like a huge screen on our minds. And images are hard to dislodge. And some of us can live years with images of God that way. We just carry those things around. So I can, tr- I can trust God so far, but I can't trust them all the way because God's got a dark side. He's got this morbid, dark side. God is weakened somehow by this ulterior sinful motive. Oh, we wouldn't say it out loud. Nobody's going to their small group this week saying, I just think God has a sinful weakness in His heart. But we can think it in our Minds don't think you don't think it because he addresses it head on in verse 13. It's common. Don't throw yourself in despair that you've ever thought that. This is common. No temptation sees you except what's common to man. And this is common to think that God can be lured and enticed. It's common to think that God can be controlled and be manipulated, as false as it is. To think that God is tempting you directly is to think that God can be hooked, God can be tricked, God can be enchanted, God can be bewitched. God, again, is frustrated. He feels angst inside, He's not at peace. God's not fully trustworthy. Bottom line, God needs a Savior. If you believe verse 13. If you believe the lie of verse 13. It's a false image of God that needs to be repented of. It's idolatry. And we carry around these idolatrous thoughts. About who God is for us. Especially in trial. That we've got to put to death. And we've got to part with that image of God. So that we can trust God fully and wholeheartedly. With all that we are and with the enduring love that verse 12 calls for. So how does he answer this objection? How how can we be sure that God does not tempt anyone? He says God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. It would be completely unhelpful if he just left it at that and just kind of left us wondering, okay, well... Where does all this enticement and where does all this allurement and where's all this darkness? Where's all that coming from if God is sovereign over the universe and all these things are happening to me all the time? It would be unhelpful if he just left it at that, but he doesn't leave it at that. He goes on to say where these things come from. Where does the darkness come from? Where does the evil come from? And here's how he answers it in verses 14 through 15. Your desires and my desires are the problem. He answers the objection. God is tempting me by saying, no, your desires are the problem. And in verse 16 through 18, to give you a heads up, he's going to say God's desires are the solution. So let's look at verses 14 through 15. Our desires are the problem. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So look at that. Each person. Every single person. He doesn't leave anybody out. You and the person sitting next to you. And your spouse. And your ch- your children. All of them. And the Pope, and leaders, and really spiritual godly people, and mentors, and everybody in the world. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And there's a little bit of a progression. You can see that he's lured. This happens kind of in the mind, and he's enticed by his emotions, by his own desire, and then desire when it has conceived. And we're going to see that Desire in and of itself is not evil. It's desire that's coming forth from an evil and sinful heart. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You're the problem. I'm the problem. The reason why I blow it is because I'm the problem. The reason why you've blown it, the reason why you've committed sin, the reason why you've been enticed and lured into anger and greed and lust and power-grabbing, Pride and just fill in the blank. The reason why those things happen is not because God on the outside is alluring us, but our desires on the inside are enticing us and dragging us along. Michelle and I went to a bookstore one time on a date and came across a book. It was titled something like, World's Criminal Monsters. And the whole, you know, pull of the book is you're supposed to pick this thing up and you're supposed to contrast all these people like Jeffrey Dahmer and Charles Manson and all these guys. And you're supposed to immediately look at them and read their story and you're supposed to pull away and say, I would never do that. These guys really are monsters. Look how awful they are. Look how incredibly wrong that is. Listen how evil that is. And it is evil. And it is wrong. And it is awful. And it is sick. Absolutely. It is monstrous. But what verse 14 and 15 says is this monstrous stuff that's in these guys is in me. This monstrous evil isn't just in the book, World's Greatest Monsters, it's in my story. I'm in the book. And you're in the book too. You'd say, I would never do that. Verse 15 says, Left to yourself, all you produce is death. That's not over-spiritualizing that text. That's not, com- that's not importing a theological perspective. That's what verse 15 says. Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Where death come from? It comes from us. That's what we produce. That's what he's being clear about. Sin is conceived in our hearts, and that's what we give birth to. We give birth to death. That's what we produce, you and I. And you can, you know, you can look out at a culture and you could say, well, you know, we don't produce death. We produce great things like hospitals and and we produce great things like culture and art and music and beauty and all these kinds of things. And the scripture will say again and again, there's another place where that comes from. We and you and I, we produce death. We're death producers. That's what we give birth to. Left to ourselves, all by ourselves. There's lots of things that people do when they come face-to-face with the monster of their own hearts. Some people hide it. I'll just put the monster down in the basement. Pretend it's not there and I'll just live my life up on the first floor or whatever. People will see an external kind of a thing. And when when the monster rattles and all that stuff, I'll just say it's not there it does It's just not there. I'll just hide it away. Or I won't let people into my house. How about that? I have a great way of hiding the monster. I just won't let you in. And then you won't see the monster. You could deny it. It belongs to somebody else. It's not my monster. It's somebody else's monster. That's the monster of my parents. Uh, that's the monster of what I'm predisposed to. But it's not really mine. It doesn't really belong to me. Or you could just let the monster out like King Kong and parade it and get some leverage out of it at least. That's what happens. I'm just going I was curious about whether I should say this or not, but that's that's the homosexual culture. I'm gonna parade this thing. I'm gonna get some leverage out of this thing. And I'm going to somehow. Well, at least it's it's popular. At least it's in fad. At least I can get somewhere out of this monster. And instead of denying it, I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to do what the Bible says, put it to death by the Spirit. So I'll just parade it and let it out. Galatians 5 says, The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other. So there's this opposing fleshly desire That is in all of us. That produces only death. And pride would say. I would never do that. I'm not that kind of person. I would never go there. I would never think that. I would never do that. And the truth is that. You you might not by God's grace. And hopefully you would never. But the same stuff in another sinner. Is the same stuff in you. And that's just sin. Sin is in you. This truth and owning this truth could also not only keep you from pride, but it could, it could even keep you from despair. How could I have ever done that? It's the paralyzing effect of coming face to face with your beast and saying, I could never have done that. How could I have done that? I'm, I'm, I'm over. It's over for me because of what I did, because of what I thought, because of what I, whatever. Whatever. How could I have done that? That despair comes on if we don't believe the truth and let the truth of verse 15 grab hold of us and say, no, desire comes from me and desire brings forth death. But that's not the end of the story for me. And it's not the end of the story for you, because even though our desires are the problem in verses 14 through 15, God's desires are the solution in verse 16 through 18. Here we're moving from the problem to the solution. If I'm the problem and I can't blame God, and my my issue, my sin, is what's keeping me from an enduring love for God, then what's the solution? I can't manufacture love. It can't come from me. It just said the only thing I produce is death. The only thing that springs up from me is wrong and backwardsness and death. I'm the reverse, I'm the antonym of what I need to produce, which is a love for God that qualifies me for eternal life with God. So where does eternal life come from? It comes from God's desires. And meditating on God's desires towards you and towards me increases our love and increases our faith towards God. God's desires are the solution. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived my Beloved brothers. He's going to set it up like that. It's great that he does that because he's saying, I'm speaking to Christians. I'm speaking to people who've given their life to Jesus and who have experienced the life of Christ. They've repented of their sins and they've turned their back on sin and they've trusted in a savior. So he's saying, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And beloved brothers can be deceived. You could have come in here thinking God, thinking about God a certain way, and you could have been deceived. Deceived. And it's great in hope giving that you don't have to be deceived. He says, don't be deceived. My beloved brothers, loved believers. That's what beloved means. Loved Christians. That's the same word he uses in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, my fellow believers, my family. Don't be deceived. Here it is. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So here's here's what he says, verse 17, every good gift. So we look around in our lives and we say, wait a second, you're saying everything springs forth death from me? Well, what about hospitals? What about medicine? What about money and clothing and schools and career and future and culture and art and beauty and homes and good causes to be a part of? What's that all about? That's coming from people, but that's not... Springing forth from death. No. It's not coming from people. It's coming from God. That's what verse 16 says. 17 says. Every good gift. Every perfect gift. Do you see the redundancy? Every. Every single thing. Everything that we would call good. Everything that we would call right and perfect. Comes from one place. It is not from down here going up. Grace doesn't flow up. It never flows up. Grace only flows down. Good things flow down. Perfect gifts flow down. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. Here we go. What's everything? Everything's coming from a Father. That's where all these good things are coming from. Hospitals and medicines. Excellent. James one seventeen. Hospitals and medicine and all these great things like Safety and good things like vacations and family and friends. All of those things are gifts from God, even in specific forms of it coming down from a father of heavenly lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Good things come to us like a deluge of rain just flowing down on us day after day after day after day after day. day. It's like we live in this low-pressure system where it's raining God's blessings all the time. And it's no fault of God that we fall in love with the mud and the puddles that it creates. and We stick little buckets under the rain and we worship the bucket of rain. Instead of saying, all all these good things are all coming from a Father, the, the Father, the Creator of lights, who is just pouring these things down. And he's pouring these things down over and over again on every single person on this planet today. In all of their lives, he's poured this stuff down to reveal his character and to reveal who he is so that every single person would say, wow, all of this stuff is flowing down to me from a father of heavenly lights. There is someone, there is a God out there that's pouring this stuff down on me And all of these things are good and perfect gifts, and it's supposed to lead us to say there must be one great and perfect gift that's come down from the Father of Lights to us. And it's supposed to send us searching, searching until we find God's ultimate good and perfect gift that's come down from above. And as we sang earlier, love has come down. Love came down from glory to our planet. Love laid aside his rights, laid aside his exalted place with the Father and came and was born in a mother's womb, took on human flesh. He came down all the way down, not just partly down, all, nobody's traveled this far, nobody knows this distance. He traveled from glory and from exalted heaven all the way to a, a manger, to a stall, and that whole journey down was one act of love. The Father of Light sending the Son, and the Son coming joyfully, knowing what He's doing, knowing who He's doing it for, for us, and doing that in love to a manger, to straw and to a, a cow stall. And then to live a perfect life and to go down further. So that was far enough, but He goes further. He goes all the way down to the cross, to Calvary, to Calvary, For us in love, nobody knows that journey. And he traveled it all the way to the Calvary, all the way to the cross. And then he's on the cross and blood is flowing down from the cross. That's the gospel in one word, down. You want to spell love? D-O-W-N, down. Love flowed down from Jesus on the cross for us. The only person who ever had life in him spilled it out for us. To give us life and to put his life in us. Love went all the way down to the grave. It was buried there for three days. In love for us. We're supposed to see all these great gifts from the Father and say, wow. There's a perfect gift. There's one gift that's come down. That all these other gifts just simply point us to him. He says, this father of lights, there's no variation with him. There's no shadow in him. There's no change in him. He compares him to the very universe that he's created. And he, and he says, this father's love, and again, images of a father in your past might need to be dismantled. Remember I said images are hard to break with. Poor images of our own earthly father can obstruct our vision of our heavenly father. He says, this father's love is pure as light. He's the father of lights. First John 1.5, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. He could have just said there's no darkness. But John says, there's no darkness, not even a little. He's as generous as the stars. You go outside, you cannot count them. You can't see them. You don't even know how large they are. You don't know if they're stars or quasars or planets or galaxies. God's love is as endless as the universe. And there's also a difference. There's a contrast in the illustration as well. God's love is not like the universe that he created in that the, the universe has an ending to it. It doesn't burn with the same intensity, but God's love does. There's a never-endingness to it. There's a never-changingness to it. There's no variation. There's no shadow due to change. It's not going to, at some point, hit a season and then turn and be different. That's not how God's love operates. And this Father who has poured down like a deluge Grace upon grace and manifestations of his own revelation and love on us has done the unthinkable in verse 18. He has not only desired, quite apart from our desires, to bless us over and over again, it's very plain in verse 18 of his own will, of his own, that word means desire. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This holy God, this clean God, this unchanging God, this loving God. Out of his own desire brings us forth by the word of truth. Now, this word us means brothers in verse 16. Beloved brothers. Verse 18, us, when he says of his own will, he brought us forth. He's talking about Christians of his own desires. He brought us forth. In other words, James says the story doesn't end with us just springing forth death upon death upon death upon death. Not for Christians, for Christians, something else can spring forth. And that's life upon life upon life upon life. But you have to be brought forth. And that's. Why you have to be a Christian, you have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. It shows how this new life comes. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, you must be what? Born again. And first Peter says, you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So the revelation of God, God uses to spring forth this life in God and for God, new life of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And that first fruits basically means that you're set apart, specially his, that you're holy, and that you're a testament that God keeps his promises. That's what what Mottier says about that word first fruits. It's an Old Testament idea Where they would bring God their first fruits, But it was their best. And it was set apart for God. And it was sanctified for worship. And it was a testimony that God keeps his promises. And that's what we are to God. On our own, yes, we produce death and we produce evil, but the story doesn't stop there if you're a believer in Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've been brought forth. You've been given new life and you've been given new life not because of your desire, but because of his desire quite outside of you. God has this overwhelming desire to bring you forth and to give you new life. And to give you new affections for him. And to give you new ability that you never had. An ability to please God that you would never have done if he had left you. In verse 15. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So for his own praise. God brings us forth. And knowing this truth about God. This is what helps us endure. In trial and in suffering. It's having a a right view of God. Trust demands truth. Trust requires truth. Without without truth, without a clear vision of God, without clear truth and clear teaching about God, we will believe the very lies that just seem to kind of conjure up in us and spread to other people and wrong images about God that we just need to repent of and turn away from the only way we can do that is the same way we were born again by the word of truth the word of truth brings us to life and the word of truth sustains us sustains life in us so this morning ask yourself the question is there any trial right now that you're faced with that is too difficult for this father of lights to deal with you're all going through trials. You are all going through temptations. You are all going through difficulties. And to some degree, in varying degrees, you're all suffering. So, what are you tempted to believe about God in the midst of that temptation, in the midst of that trial? Is there anything that is too difficult for Him? Is there any desire? Is there any allurement? Is there any enticement that you're faced with, that you're battling right now in your life that is stronger than his desire? Of his own will, he brought you forth by the word of truth. Of his own desire, he brought you forth. Of his own love, of his own grace toward you personally, he brought you forth by the word of truth. Is there anything that you're struggling with that would eclipse that desire? Any desire going on in you that's raging inside of you that can overpower God's desire? No, cannot, and it will not. The truth is, and we'll close on this. If you could all stand and we'll, we'll end in prayer. The truth is that there is nothing that he is unwilling to overcome in you. See, if we believe verse 18, and I trust we all do, if we believe verse 18, we would also believe that there's nothing, simply nothing, that He's unwilling to overcome in us. There's no trial that we're facing, no suffering that we're going through, that His love and His grace won't overcome. Why? Because He desires us and He loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Your love is pure and Your love is generous and endless. It never stops. It's never ending. It's never changing. The same love that brought us forth by the word of truth that applied the gospel of salvation to our hearts, whether it was 10 days ago or whether it was 10 years ago, is the same love that that brought you from heaven to earth. And from earth all the way to Calvary. And God, we want to, by your truth, increase in our trust in you today. Thank you for your word, God. It's not the word of man because it produces supernatural things in us. produces life. And we just repent, Lord, this morning, we just, all of us repent of bad images that we've had of you, that we've carried along with with us. Old and decrepit images of you that just aren't true. And we just ask by act of your grace, you'd expose those to us this morning. And by your grace, help us to remove those. Father, we thank you. In Jesus name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.